You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. My name is Emmy. You've already met me like virtually up there a couple seconds ago. I'm good with any pronoun that's not he. Um, Thank you for being here, whether you are here, here, or whether you are online. We are glad that you are here. Um, And if you have any questions or this is your first time and you like don't know what's going on, Mac is a great resource to chat with after service. I'll also be around. If you're online, there's like a face behind that like Forefront Brooklyn name that keeps showing up in the comments. So just like shoot them a comment, shoot them a message, and then they can reach out to you. Um, And as you may have guessed from our meet and greet question today, we're going to be talking about change, about what change feels like in our bodies, about how we process it, about how Jesus deals with change in the Gospels. But before we do any of that, I want us to all pray together, okay? And if that's not your thing, you can just sit in silence with us for like 60 seconds, and that's also good. All right. Oh, God. (laughs) Thank you for this church and for these people. Thank you that we can gather here together today, and as we wrestle with this question of change, which can be painful, which can be hard, I pray that you would give us wisdom and that you would give us discernment, and that you would give us humility as we look for answers, and patience and peace, even if we don't find them. Amen. All right. So a lot of y'all know, some of you do not, that this last summer I was in El Paso in Texas. Uh, So I was living in a warehouse. I was working in a warehouse. It was really exhausting. We never really got to leave. There was one day a week that we got to, like, head out from the warehouse and go out into Texas. And so this day finally came, and I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to borrow my friend Hugh's minivan. I'm going to go up to the mountains. I'm going to go on a run. It'll be awesome. So I borrow my friend Hugh's minivan. I get on the highway. I'm, like, listening to the radio in Spanish. I'm like, oh, this is great. And then I realize halfway to the mountains that that night is Forefront's leadership celebration on Zoom. And I'm like, shoot. Okay. This is going to be fine. I'm going to make it work. And so I do the thing that you should not ever do and I like pull out my Gmail with like one hand while I'm driving and I like pull up the Zoom link and I put it on the dashboard and I'm still driving and I like burst into the Zoom meeting or whatever you would call it. Um, and Sarah knew our community pastor, our old community pastor's face pops up and I get into the Zoom meeting just in time to hear them say, it's been a great chapter of my life and I'm going to be heading out and I'm going to be going to Yale and I'm going to miss you all. And I, <laughs> I have to pull the minivan over because <laughs> I burst into tears. I can't drive anymore. Because <laughs> Sarah meant so much to me, not just because they were a great leader, because they were a great person, but because they were the first pastor I had ever had that wasn't a cis dude. <laughs> I didn't know that positions of leadership could exist for people that were like Sarah. I just didn't know that was a thing, maybe in some churches, but not in a church that I had ever gone to. That was something so new to me. 
And I knew that eventually I was going to be really excited for Sarah. Now I am really excited for Sarah. They're going to go to Yale. They're going to do amazing things. And I did not know that when I was on the mountain. I just knew my grief. That was all I knew. And then a month later, I open up my Gmail, and I get an email from our other pastor, Jonathan Williams. And this email, as many of you know, says, hey, this chapter's been great, and I, too, am going to be heading out to do something different, to have a period of rest. And y'all, I was so dazed and so sad and a little mad, if I'm honest, not at Jonathan and not at Sarah, but just like that after this year of so much change, where like everything in my life had changed and Forefront had been this constant thing, that this was going to change too. And I don't know what your relationship is with Forefront. Some of y'all have been going here way longer than me and like know Sarah and Jonathan more intimately than I do. Some of y'all, this is like your first time at Forefront. You don't know who Jonathan is. You don't know who Sarah is. You don't know what I'm talking about. And that's totally fine too. But something that I do know is that something about your life that was there in February of 2020 is not there now. You have lost something. And maybe that was something big, like a house or a job or a person. Maybe that was something small, like the freedom to go see your friends without like frantically Googling what the latest statistics are. The freedom to wear glasses when you go out grocery shopping without feeling like you're peering through the windows in that one scene in Titanic and you just can't, like, <laughs> you've lost something. And so I want to talk about what that's like, what it's like to lose something, what it's like to change something on a personal level, on a systemic level, about what happens when we have to confront that change. And what do we do? Because <laughs> I am not sure what we do, y'all. But for the next 20 minutes, I want to try to piece it together. OK? That sounds good? Cool. All right, here we go. Uh, so as we get ready to tackle this question as Christians or even just as people who find ourselves in a church on this particular Sunday morning, there are a couple examples that we can look to. And the first one is the church. <laughs> this isn't going to be breaking news to most of the people in this room, but the church historically does not do great with change. <laughs> it's, it's pretty rough. Jesus shows up, he does this thing, he heads out, and the disciples <laughs> are left with just this chaos. And so... The way the early church starts out, the disciples are gathering in these small communities, they're gathering in homes. For the first 150 years of the church history, we don't even have a building. People are just doing their own thing. And then around the year 300, as things start to consolidate, as Christianity starts to gain power, this guy Constantine, Holy Roman Emperor, arguably like the most powerful man in the world at that time, starts to realize this group of people is growing. They're gaining something. It's time to use this new, crazy religious thing and pair that with the dominant political power at the time. So Christianity starts to kind of consolidate. It starts to get itself together. We got the Nicene creeds going. Yeah, there they are. Look at all those dudes and their Nicene creeds. <laughs> and the gist of this is trying to make Christian theology one thing. Right? They're trying to, to pare it down so that we have it in one place so that we know what we believe so that we're set. 
And all of this stuff <laughs> kind of sums up to one concept, all of the theology that's in this document. And that concept is to keep things the way that they are. There are kind of some exceptions, but from 300 CE onwards, for centuries, the church's reaction to change, at least initially, is to freeze, to seize up. And we see this pattern over and over again throughout history, that as the church becomes a dominant social institution, it becomes terrified of the idea of change. Martin Luther shows up and says the church needs to change the way it relates to the people it serves, and he gets excommunicated. Galileo shows up and says, we need to change the way that we think about the heavens. We need to change the way that we think about the earth. He gets stuck on a flaming island by himself. A church in Brooklyn shows up and says it's LGBT affirming, and it loses all its funding and half its congregation. So if we're looking for an example as Christians for how to deal with change, I don't really think we can make the argument that the church is the place to start. Which, which is interesting to me because the guy who's like at the center of our faith, right, literally like the reason we have like a church at all, is this catalyst for such change. Specific physical changes, right? He's changing like water into wine. He's taking a single fish into many fish. There's all kinds of change happening, but there's also these larger ideological changes that he embodies. You know, he changes the exclusive into the open, the expected into the surprising, the powerful into the powerless, and vice versa. And then in his ultimate act, the thing that we still hold as a bedrock of our faith today, he changes death into life, and then offers that life to everyone abundantly. So if we have this man as the model for our institution of church, why are we so afraid of change? And I think there's a couple reasons. And I think the first one is that change is scary, right? It moves us from what we can see into what we can't. There's this verse in James that talks about how God does not change like shifting shadows. And I think for so many of us, that's how we see change, right? Is like these shifting shadows, something very scary, something very dark, something to be avoided. When you're in the middle of a change, whether it's an institutional change or a personal change, you're deconstructing your faith, you're trying to figure out what the heck is going on with your gender identity or your sexuality. Even if you know you'll be better for having done the work, in the midst of it, it feels dark. It feels painful. It hurts to try to wade through it all and sometimes it feels like there's not a shoreline to get to. Moving into change means moving away from the familiar and that's terrifying. I think the second reason that we find change so hard is that change asks us to lose something. The new comes in and replaces the old. Jesus kind of touches on this when he's talking about the wineskins, right? He talks about how you can't put new wine in old wineskins. You can't try to fit things into what they used to be. Once you're out of the closet, you can't get yourself back in. <laughs> and for many of us, the loss of the last few months has been the loss of old leaders, of old friends. For some of us, it's also been the loss of a teaching pastor that's the same ethnicity as us, right? But the loss of that privilege has made space for new and welcome joys. Because while it was a privilege to have the humor and authenticity of a teaching pastor like Jonathan, it is also an immense privilege to be taught by someone as articulate, passionate, and talented as Vinayda Rodman Jenkins. 
You hear that, Vanita? That's all for you. That's all going away. But before we can have that, before we can have that joy, we had to lose the old. For the early church, when it came to like Galileo or Martin Luther or any of those guys I mentioned, change asked them to lose certainty. To acknowledge these new and scary ideas meant losing the confidence that what they'd always believed was going to remain true. And to lose the power of being the dominant voice in the conversation. For the American church today, change asks us to lose our old ideas of what a church community might look like and who that church community might include. It also asks us to lose the lie that Christianity has existed as an ethical tradition. That Christianity as an institution has given more to this world than it has taken. Change asks us as the American church today to lose the belief in our infinite rightness and instead acknowledge that as an institution we have upheld oppression. We used Paul's writings to affirm slavery, to keep women from teaching. We used Jesus' words to kill and colonize in nations not our own in the name of the gospel. And when folks from those nations come to our borders, as 12,000 Haitians did this week, we refused to let them in and we put them on planes to send them right back. Christianity as an institution has caused so much harm and so much violence. And we cannot change until we acknowledge and lose a history that says we have perfectly loved the Lord our God, perfectly loved our neighbor as ourselves. If we want change, that's a lie we got to lose. So, so far in our 20-minute journey together to try to figure out what change looks like, we've established three things, okay? We've established change is scary. Change requires loss. And the church historically is not very good at it. <laughs> so if we have Christians are trying to figure out what to deal with when it comes to change, and we can't look to the church for our example of how to go from keeping things as the way they are to imagining things the way they could be, then we have to turn to our other big example. We got to look to Jesus. What does Jesus do when everything changes? How does he respond? How does he ask us to? He's not here today. We can't ask him. It's unfortunate. I feel like many things would be much easier if he still was. Uh, it would solve so many things. That's okay. Uh, so instead, we got to look to the Gospels, right? And if we look to the Gospels, we kind of see these like three principles that Jesus seems to exercise every time a big change comes into the picture. Three things that we can practice today to help us move from the church's vision of things the way they are to a new vision of things the way they could be. And the first thing that we see from Jesus is this, that you got to feel what you feel, right? Jesus is not a stoic guy. Jesus is not like this pastoral man who like sits under trees and like chills out with lambs and tiny children. He's also not an angry masculine kind of guy that's going John Wayne and just shooting off from the hip and having no reaction to what's happening around him. We see when he loses his best friend Lazarus in John 11, he doesn't ask for the disciples to give him a minute. He doesn't sneak off to go to the bathroom. He weeps openly, loudly in front of them. When he's on the cross, when he's in this moment of change from life into death, he doesn't look up to the heavens and go, mm, it is well with my soul. He says, God, why have you forsaken me? 
He says, if change is meant to be good, why do I feel so alone? Anybody feel that this year? <laughs> Jesus is not afraid to feel. He acknowledged sorrow and he acknowledged joy. He may have been an eternal being, but he acknowledged the experience of being a human. And as a community right now, we're going through big changes <laughs> and it's inspiring all kinds of emotion. There's uncertainty at what's happening. There's fear at what's gonna happen. There's joy at what's already arrived. Celebration for what is new. And all of those mixed up emotions are part of processing a change. We gotta embrace them, we gotta feel them because if we weren't, we would be living a lie. That doesn't mean we gotta stay stuck in those feelings. I'm not still crying in that minivan on the side of the road in Texas. <laughs> You gotta feel what you feel and then you gotta move forward. We have to be generous with ourselves the way that Jesus was. Give ourselves time to feel our feelings, whatever they may be, and then come back down from that mountain and do the work, right? And that brings us to our second example from Jesus, which is to lean into that change with love. See, the early church, when like Martin Luther or Galileo or any of those guys that I talked about showed up, they did a great job with step one. They felt their fear, and they felt their uncertainty, and then they stopped. They didn't do anything else, right? They didn't like reckon with like why those feelings were coming up for them or like what might lie on the other side of those feelings. They just got stuck. When we see the apostles going through this change that happens after Jesus goes up into heaven and they're kind of left alone. They've got a lot of those same feelings as the early church, right? They're, they're probably a little angry. They're very scared. They've got lots of uncertainty. And they don't stop there, right? They don't sit into that. They lean forward. In Galatians, we read this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This this big change coming in this time that's already so tumultuous for the disciples. This is a big lean into change with love. That's a big way of letting go of things the way they are and imagining things the way that they could be. That's a change that for us today requires us to let go of our egos, of our pride and our individualism. <laughs> If we declare that we are all one in Christ Jesus as we lean forward into this change as a church, that our multitude of racial, political, gendered, classed, sexual identities remains one in Christ Jesus, that there's no other in Christ Jesus. It's one body. There's not margins to reside in. That doesn't mean that we disregard our personal identities. It doesn't mean we go around pretending that those differences don't exist because they are important and they have a role to play in the creation of a community, it just means that this love is big enough to hold all of them at the same time. And this love is big enough to go in all directions, y'all. Our unhoused neighbors on the subway, the love goes over there. Our siblings in the city that are working as sex workers right now, goes on over there. The folks protesting at the Capitol yesterday, it goes over there. The guy at Trader Joe's that isn't wearing his mask quite right, it goes over there. <laughs> Our relatives who don't agree with the science 
and instead make decisions that danger their communities in regards to this vaccine, that love still goes over there. It doesn't mean that that behavior is excused. It doesn't mean that that behavior doesn't have consequences, but it also doesn't excuse us if we refuse to love them. We are still called to lean into them with love. Leaning into this new era of forefront is going to require leaning in with love. Love for our community, even as we're redefining it. It's going to require patience, humility, discomfort, and a recognition that we are still all one in Christ Jesus. So as we move from things the way they are to things the way we, they, they could be, we got to feel what we feel, and then we got to lean into love. And then we get to move to the third step, which I think arguably is the most enjoyable step, the best step, which is to have joy in what is new. Because after we, we grieve the old, after we let go of what might make us comfortable, after we consider other perspectives, other visions, other leaderships, we get the joy of new community. In Revelations, it says this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And y'all, there's lots of theology to break down in this passage. We are in the second half of this message, so I'm not going to touch like 90% of that. But if you have questions, I am a big Revelations nerd, and I will talk with you after the sermon. (laughs) But for now, I just want to focus on just one word, just one word in this whole big section that the author uses. And that word is okolos, the Greek word for multitude. But when we directly translate it, it's not multitude. It's not like big group of people. It's not crowd. The translator tells us that okolos is a word for the rabble, the throng, the riot. (laughs) The image that we get from the author of Revelations is not this crowd dressed in white with their palm fronds, waving them in the air like their cell phones at an Adele concert. (laughs) It's a mosh pit, y'all. People are going nuts. People are stomping their feet. People are feeling this joy with the entirety of their bodies, the entirety of themselves, and they're feeling it in community, surrounded by other people. It is loud, chaotic liberation. That's what's on the other side of change. Joy. Not a hallmark kind of joy, not joy that doesn't acknowledge that it's been long and it's been hard and it's been messy, but joy that is big enough to hold all of those different emotions and yet still affirm that what is new is good and worth celebrating. And as we end this time together talking about change, I want us to close with this text from 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this, are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, 
as the Lord has assigned each to his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are all God's fellow workers. We are all God's fellow workers. Because y'all, when I first moved to New York and I was feeling lost and confused and searching for a church community to help me through the process of deconstructing my faith, I did not Google church with Jonathan Williams. (laughs) Sorry, Jonathan, I did it. I didn't know who that man was. I did not Google church with Sarah New. I Googled affirming church. I Googled justice-oriented church. I Googled joyful church. Don't know that the algorithm was built for that, but I did Google it. Because no one person or one institution has a monopoly on the limitless love of Christ. Not me. Not Jonathan. Not Vanita. Not Forefront. Not American Christianity. Because yes, Forefront is a just and generous expression of the Christian faith, and it is also just one form of that expression. In one building, with one group of people, under a God who's bigger than we could ever fathom. And if we really want to usher in the next 500 years of Christianity, like we say all the time, we also got to acknowledge that we're not going to be around in 500 years. (laughs) Forefront might. That'd be great. We're not, y'all. Sorry, unless one of you knows something I don't know. We're not going to be here. We are committing to something that is larger than any individual church, and any individual self. And that is going to be hard, and that is going to require loss, but that is also going to inspire joy. So let us lean into that change with love. Amen? Amen. Thanks, Warfriend. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.